So as a church, we've been going through the Gospel of John when I've been sharing, and uh, we're up to John chapter 7. So this will be pretty exciting, going through the Gospel and continuing on. It's been great up to this point, hasn't it? I'm just enjoying going through bit by bit um, through the Gospel and and hearing about Jesus. But what I want to do to set up where we go from here is to show a video about Messiah um, from the Bible Project. Who looks at the Bible Project videos? Anyone know of them? You should go on YouTube and search, my daughter does because of school, um, uh, search Bible Project. They do some amazing um, videos. I'll show you one. Let's have a look. There's this crazy story at the beginning of the Bible. We have Adam and Eve, and they're in the Garden of Eden. And everything in this garden is great. It's exactly as it should be, except there's this one tree that they're told by God not to eat from because it's dangerous and it will kill them. So that's it. Uh, Avoid this fruit tree and we're fine. Right. It seems pretty simple. But in this garden, there's a snake. And it starts telling a different story. It says that if you eat of this tree, it's not going to kill you. In fact, it's going to make you become like God. And Adam and Eve, they believe the snake and they eat the fruit. And because of this, the goodness of the garden is tragically lost and evil and death enters into God's good world. Now, why is there a talking snake in the garden? I mean, this thing is a problem. Yeah, it's very strange. And even more strange is the fact that the Bible doesn't say why or how this thing even got there. It just presents the snake as this creature who's in rebellion against God and that wants to get other people to doubt God's goodness and lead them on a path towards death. And so whatever this snake is, it's the source of evil that pervades our world and our lives, even still today. But there is some hope because right here in the story, God makes this really interesting promise to Adam and Eve. That someone is going to come in the future, a son of Eve. And this guy's going to come and he's going to crush the serpent's head and destroy evil at its source. However, during this battle, the serpent is going to bite this guy's heel. So it's like a mutual destruction. Yeah, it's this very strange but beautiful promise. And it's just left hanging there until the next key moment in the story when God singles out this guy named Abraham and says that through his family, goodness and blessing is going to be restored back to all of the nations of the world. And as we follow this family, we get to one of Abraham's great grandsons, this guy named Judah. And he receives this promise that a king is going to come from his line and that the whole world's going to follow this king and he's going to bring peace and harmony and there'll be lots of food and wine and milk and vineyards and it's going to be awesome. The first king that we meet from the line of Judah is a guy named King David. And he's a hero. Maybe he is the snake crusher. But it turns out that David is infected with the same evil as the rest of humanity. He never crushes the snake, just the opposite. However, God makes a promise to David that this king is going to eventually come from his line. But as you go on in the story, one by one, each generation of his sons, they're just total chumps. They give in to the snake, they choose evil, they go after money and sex and power and following other gods. Things get so bad that they run the nation of Israel right into the ground and the big bad empire of Babylon just takes them out. And so now there are no more kings to even fulfill this promise. So it seems like the whole plan is lost. But during these dark days, there's this crazy group of guys called prophets. And they just kept talking about this coming king and reminding us of the promise that he'll come, he'll defeat evil, he'll restore the garden. Now, one specific prophet, Isaiah, he tells us more about why this king is bitten. Isaiah says that the promised king receives this wound 
because of humanity's evil, and then it kills him. But then all of a sudden he comes back. And Isaiah says it's because he suffered this wound that he can now become a source of healing to other people. But the Old Testament ends, and the snake-crushing king that everyone's been talking about never shows up. And this is why, when the New Testament begins, it introduces us to Jesus of Nazareth, not as some random guy, but as someone who comes to fulfill these specific ancient promises. Yeah, we learn that he's from the line of David, Judah, and Abraham. And he goes around Israel announcing that the goodness of God's kingdom is here now. And he begins confronting the effects of evil on people by healing them, by forgiving them of their sins and evil. Many people are now believing that this is, in fact, the promised king. But Jesus began telling his closest followers that he was going to become king and bring peace by taking the full effect of humanity's evil into himself. The fatal snake bite wound. Exactly. And so it seems like the serpent wins. And this story actually would be a tragedy except for what happens next. Jesus rises from the dead. And now Jesus has the power over evil and death for himself. And so the rest of the New Testament is then making this claim that Jesus's power over evil and death has now become available to us to begin confronting the effects of evil in our lives. But even still, death and evil are a real problem in our world all around us. And so the story of the Bible ends by describing this future day when Jesus comes back and he finishes the job. He destroys the snake once and for all and he restores the goodness of the garden here on earth. Cool. Good video, right? The Bible Project. Write it down, look it up because they do a lot of really good um, informative videos about the Bible. They've actually got a video, I think, uh, like a summary of every book of the Bible on their channel. Um, so it's free to access. Have a look at it. Uh, but we're looking at uh, John chapter 7, and, and my title for this chapter is Jesus the Divider. Now, don't take it the wrong way. He's not coming on purpose to divide people, but as a natural consequence of Jesus sharing who he is and what he's come to do and what he represents, it divides the people, doesn't it? People choose... A camp to be on. You know, when the temperature soars to say the 30s or even the 40s at summertime uh, and above, a glass of cold lemonade, maybe an iced tea, it's pretty refreshing, isn't it? Would you agree? So it's refreshing on those days. You know, when that heat is accompanied by thick humidity, I moved away from that on the Sunshine Coast to come here eight and a half years ago, and yet we had a quite a humid summer last summer, didn't we? What was that, Trev? We don't, Trev and I don't deal with humidity. It's not nice. Uh, but when it comes in this thick humidity, an air-conditioned car or an air-conditioned house, that's refreshing, isn't it? Uh, when you're feeling sluggish, maybe a little tired, you know, a brisk walk or a dip in a cool pool is refreshing. It sort of sparks you awake. Um, when your heat is dehydrating you and you're feeling really thirsty, a bottle of water is quite refreshing, isn't it? But when you're tired, maybe a 20-minute power nap well, we call them nana naps, don't we? <laughs> uh, is refreshing, isn't it? Who likes a nana nap sometimes in the afternoon? There's a few hands there. Uh, when you crave chocolate, a chocolate bar is pretty refreshing, isn't it? Yeah. Who likes chocolate? Who's lying? Yep. The rest of you. Okay. So chocolate's good. Uh, when your nerves are frazzled, you know, a long hot bath can be pretty refreshing, can't it? Maybe a bit of candlelight, bit of soft worship music, bit of bit of rose petals. Oh, hang on, that's romantic. We won't. <laughs> So that's pretty refreshing. Uh, when you've worked hard for a long period, maybe you've had a big um, period of work, 
you know, when you get to just sort of lounge around on the couch and do nothing, that's refreshing, isn't it? After a big, hard season of working. Refreshment takes many forms, depending on the situation and depending on our needs. So Jesus offered spiritual refreshment to the Jewish people. That's where we're at in John chapter 7. But their responses are varied um, and and quite widely varied. And uh, it's all recorded in John chapter 7 that we're about to have a look at. Some people said he was a good man and and some thought he was a deceiver. And some said he was demon-possessed. Believe it or not, it is in the Bible. The Pharisees wanted to arrest him and others believed he was the promised Messiah. So one thing was clear, and that is that Jesus' offer that he was bringing, representing who he was, divided the people into different camps. So let's, let's get started, and let's go to John chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. It says this, After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea, because the Jews sought to kill him. Probably a good choice to not walk there right now. Um, Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Well, that's encouraging, isn't it? When your own brothers aren't believing in who you are. You know, instead of choosing the most direct route, and Jesus often did this as he travelled between places, he often determined the route based on who he wanted to encounter or who he wanted to see, like the Samaritan woman at the well that we've read about already, um, or, or the, the gentleman at the, at the pool of Bethesda that he healed, he chose to go there. Um, or perhaps he's making decisions on where not to go based on who he doesn't want to see, like people that want to kill him. Uh, In this case, he's avoiding these Jewish leaders because it's not his time yet. And so it wouldn't be right for him to go that way and be killed right now. Ever since Jesus had healed the paralyzed man at that pool at Bethesda on the Sabbath, the religious leaders were not happy with him at all and they wanted to kill him. So from this point on in the Gospel of John, he focuses on more of the opposition that Jesus faced. You know, when it was time to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know if you know much about the feast, but his half-brothers were after him to go there and show the world who he was. Let's make a big noise, you know. Parade Jesus in. He's our hero. He's our Messiah. Let's make a big scene. Uh, The Feast of Tabernacles was actually a week-long festival, uh, and it was a Thanksgiving celebration for the harvest. And it was a commemoration of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. We know that story about them being... uh, Encountering, wanting to encounter the promised land but wandering in the wilderness all that time and the time it took to, for, for gods to come, and, to come and bless them. So they're celebrating that season. Um, it falls in September, October on our calendar that we have um, and it was one of these three pilgrim feasts in which the Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem. You had to go there to celebrate the feast. So they lived in temporary booths and there's an episode of The Chosen that shows this where Jesus makes the comment that it's a leveller of all men when you're staying in these outside tents that, you know, if it rains you're going to get wet because they're not waterproof and all that. But rich people, poor people, sick people, it's a level playing field. So you haven't got the rich people in their fancy mansions and the poor people struggling on the street. Everyone is levelled out and, and in these booths that they stay in. Uh, 
the average, it reminds them of their time going through the wilderness. That's the point of staying in the booths. It reminds them of that. Now, the average people were gathered like the crowd waiting outside maybe, I don't know, the Academy Awards. You know how they have the red carpet and all the superstars come in and, and so everyone's there waiting for the who's who to arrive at the festival. And this is what the brothers want. They wanted Jesus to arrive like that with fanfare. And, um, you know, all Jesus had to do was walk in and go, hey, guys, I'm the Messiah. And everyone was like, woo. Uh, but no, that's not what he wanted. He didn't want all the fanfare and all the... Um, so at this point, Jesus' brothers didn't even believe he was the Messiah. They hadn't come to that point in their own belief yet. But for whatever reasons, they were concerned that Jesus was missing a huge opportunity to come out and say who he was. But, and Jesus could have done whatever he wanted. He's the son of God. And so he could have done that, but he knew that wasn't what his father in heaven wanted for him. Uh, Jesus didn't want to do that just yet. So let's keep reading. John chapter 7, verses 6 to 9. Unwanted advice. He didn't want the brothers telling him, go and do it this way. He had advice from above. So... John chapter 7, verses 6 and 9 says, Then Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When he had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. So he didn't follow his brother's advice he decided to stick with his plan. So Jesus operates on his own timetable. I think he hears from God above and he knows what he's meant to do and when he's meant to do it. And so he operates on his own timetable and his own terms. This wasn't the right opportunity to go to the feast to celebrate because of the Jewish leaders' hatred towards him, even though he loved them. They hated him. So Jesus wanted to avoid unwelcome publicity. It wasn't wise to have that at this time. So he stayed behind in Galilee and he had plans of his own and he was sticking with them. Now notice this. This is really key. There's a little word in the phrase, my time is not yet come. Yet. He says yet. He says, oh, I'm not, he doesn't say I'm not going to that feast at all. He just says my time has not yet come. So he didn't say he wouldn't go down to the feast. He just was going to go on his terms when he was ready. So, uh, that's just an interesting thing to note that he was on his father's time, not on the people's time. He wasn't going to bow to their demands. If your family member, um, I don't know, who's in a family that you're one of the only saved ones in your family? That's me, my hand's up. Um, so if your family members ridicule your faith in God or treat it as unimportant or mock it or refuse to talk about it, you're definitely not alone because I was one of those. I had a season in my life, my dad's passed away now, but there was a season where he would... Um, email us every other week because he'd joined some other religion. He hadn't actually, but he just decided, I'm a Muslim this week, I'm a Buddhist this week. And he'd come at us to pick a fight, basically, with our faith and for us to defend our faith. And eventually we got to the conclusion that we need to just leave that because <laughs> it's just an argument you're never going to win, you know, with keyboard warriors because he wouldn't ring and talk. It would all be written in emails. And, and these days it's Facebook and messages and, and things. People are goading you and... Uh, just stay away from that. That's my little tip for you today. It's free. It's not in my notes. But don't, don't, don't engage in debate on any written platform like social media or even text messaging on your phone. One, there's a record of it, so it, they can keep it forever. So if you slip up and say something you probably don't mean, um, it's there forever. You can't erase it. 
Uh, and then two, you're just never going to win uh, an argument on those platforms. So there you go. That's for free. I'll give you that. Uh, so don't do that. All right. Let's go to uh, John uh, chapter 7 and verses 10 to 13. We'll continue on. But when his brothers had gone up, then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. This is more Jesus' style. Stealth mode, undercover, going in, not making a big fuss. Um, Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said he is good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. So Jesus is the talk of the town when he arrives. And uh, when the time was right, Jesus makes his way to the feast without drawing attention to himself, without fanfare. Does that remind you of something when he was born? Didn't make a big deal. Yeah, there was a big star in the sky. I guess that's, that's making a point. But he got born in a stable with animals and in a, he didn't come with fanfare and in a kingly way. Um, the atmosphere in the town was tense. That's what the scripture is telling us. As usual, Jesus was the topic of conversations and whispers. You know, everyone's talking about him because they don't want to make a big scene for fear of the Jewish people. The, the people called him a good man and a deceiver and anything and everything, but he said that he was. So they weren't talking about him as the son of God, uh, which is what I think Jesus wanted them to talk to him about. I'm Jesus, God's son, the Messiah. No one talked about him openly because they feared what the Jewish authorities would do to them. So they were in fear. So they were just, it was just whispers. It's like the murmurs in the crowd. Have you ever been in a crowd where there's that, and there's that buzz and you know something's going on and about to happen? That's what it was like. So Jesus is the talk of the town. Verses 14 to 15 say, Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters having never studied. Who wants to be this? Smart without studying. I thought of you, Ian. Wouldn't it be great if you could just know it all? It'd be like Ian's, I don't know if you know, but Ian's studying, it's spatial science, that's what it's called, isn't it? And and so it'd be like someone coming in here, standing up at the pulpit and declaring everything there is to know about spatial science without ever opening a textbook, without ever looking at, because they were just smart without studying. And Ian would be there going, I hate you. No. <laughs> because he puts in a lot of study. I know he does. But halfway through the celebration, Jesus shows up in the temple court. And it's a very public place. So he's gone in stealth mode, but now he's putting himself out there again. And, and, and he begins to teach the people. And the people were surprised at how much he knew about scriptures since he didn't have a theological degree. Um, he hadn't had any training with a rabbi. Um, he hadn't had any advanced theological education. Um, he didn't go to seminary or graduate school or anything like that. He just gets up and he talks like he knows it all. And, but the people think, hang on a minute, this guy's a carpenter. We know this guy. He's an uneducated man who didn't even profess to be a rabbi by the way he was dressed. So who is this guy? Well, I mean, we know him. He's just this local guy uh, who, who's a carpenter. But see, Jesus didn't need formal training uh, because his teaching came straight from God. He had access to the source. Everyone who wanted to do God's will would recognize his teaching as such. And so wouldn't you just love that, having access to the source directly and not having to study, that it all just comes? That would be just so brilliant. I'd love that. Uh, But that's what Jesus has walked into. They're all like, you're a carpenter. How are you up there knowing all 
this stuff. Verses 16 to 19 say this. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keep the law? Snap. There would have been a hush over the crowd when he said that. I reckon there would have been a pregnant pause. Little crickets chirping in the background, something. Nervous laughter, I don't know. And then, uh, why, did, why do you seek to kill me? So this is about discerning right teaching. Instead of waiting for the people to challenge his credentials, Jesus just took the offensive and he goes out there and he tells them to check him out. Look me up. He even challenged their lack of keeping the law even though they profess to do so. See, he's the son of God, so he knows that they don't keep all the laws because we can't in our own strength. That's why Jesus came. Then he wanted to know why they were trying to kill him. So he's, he's pressing in now to discover what's going on here. Why are you after me? All right, verses 20 to 24. The people answered and said, You have a demon. They're <laughs> telling him he's demon-possessed. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Here's the thing, you can't judge a book by its cover. There we go. You can't judge a book by its cover. Uh, you could almost see now, I think, in this scene, fireworks starting to take off because he's, he's going for it now. You know, he's getting condemned because he healed someone on the Sabbath, yet they religiously circumcise uh, newborns and, and, and on the Sabbath to fulfill the law. So Jesus and the people, fireworks. Uh, he certainly wasn't going to win friends and influence people as he's starting to talk this way. Um, you know, like our politicians do. He certainly wasn't going to get elected to be prime minister or president or whatever. Uh, naturally, the people denied they were going to kill him. Oh, no, we weren't going to do that. It was, what are you talking about? Accusing him of being possessed by a demon was a classic sidestep. It's like, oh, look over there. <laughs> it just changed the topic. Uh, Jesus wouldn't let them get away with it, though. So he brought them back to the real issue of their false judgment. And he's talking about how... How could they possibly accuse him of breaking the Sabbath law by healing that person at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath? How could he break Sabbath law by healing a man when they circumcise infants on the Sabbath? So, in other words, they're being hypocritical, aren't they? They're saying one rule for them because, well, we're fulfilling the law, but it's not okay for Jesus to heal someone. So, ponder this. As, as Jesus pointed out, a doctrine in theology or Bible doesn't guarantee a right relationship with God or even accurate knowledge about him. So having all the study, all the qualifications, and I'm not knocking those things, hear me out, uh, but having all those things doesn't give you right relationship with God. It gives you knowledge. God isn't looking for academic credentials. He wants people with right heart attitudes. That's what the video talked about earlier, how the snake has entered and it's wrapped itself around the hearts of man in the world with evil. And we need to acknowledge Jesus to have that removed from our lives. He's concerned about the heart, not your head. 
Now, knowledge is great, and I know we have some academics in the room, so I'm not saying this to offend you. I think knowledge is brilliant. If, you've, if that's your bent on life and you love to study, more power to you. Go and do it. But I trust that you know that that knowledge isn't what creates relationship with your Heavenly Father. It's, it's, it's a heart relationship. It's a personal relationship with Jesus. Go and study and learn it all and teach me. Go for it. But have your heart right before God. He wants people with right heart attitudes, people who realize that they need him and they're not too proud to confess that. See, what happens with academics, not, not the ones in this room, but, but people that are full academic, it consumes them and it becomes their world and then they're too proud to admit that they need Jesus because, well, I know it all and I'm educated and, and I can talk my way out of any argument and maybe they can, but it's a personal relationship that they need. Uh, let's apply this now. Let me give you some tips how to spot false um, teachers. So the first one is their words don't match what the Bible teaches. There's a key point. If you get a teacher come through and they say something that doesn't sit right with you, well, go straight to the Word of God and marry it up with that. Match it up with what it says. And if it doesn't match up, let it go like water off a duck's back. Forget about it. Words have to match the Bible. So if they don't, there's every chance that you've got a false teacher. Here's the next one. They focus on themselves, not God. So they're very good at promoting who they are and I do this and I do that and I'm so great because I've got this ministry and all this stuff happens and me, me, me. Is it turning people to Jesus? No, it's focusing people on the person. So make sure that the people speaking, teaching, aren't focusing on themselves and everything that they do. Uh, and that's the next point. They don't point people to Jesus. Come and sign up to our newsletter. Come and be part of our ministry. Come and join this. Come and... But, but are they pointing you to Jesus? That's what I want to know. They don't challenge people to live out the commands and principles of Scripture. That's a big one. They come up with their own set of rules. Kind of sounds like the Pharisees. They rarely talk about sin and the need for repentance. We talk about that at the end of every service at Vineyard Christian Church. It's so important to understand that we need a saviour. That's why we gather to celebrate Jesus, the one who came to help us to be forgiven of all the things that we've ever done wrong, the mistakes that we've made. We can't get that forgiveness in our own strength in this lifetime or ever. We need Jesus for forgiveness and we need to repent and admit that we need him for that to happen. So uh, let's go to the next. Oh, can we click on the PowerPoint again? Something's decided to click on there. There we go. Let's go to John chapter 7. 25 to 27. We're nearly done for today. I can smell the coffee. <laughs> Anyone else smell the coffee? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Verse 25 says, Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know the, the, where this man is from, but when he, the Christ comes... No one knows where he is from. That's what they're saying. But is that biblically true? Let's, let's take a look at that because they're saying that we know this man. The people realise that this man's called Jesus and that he was the centre of all this controversy that's been whispered about around the crowd. They didn't think he could possibly be Christ the Messiah since they knew where he came from. So for some reason in their mind, um, they thought because they knew where he came from, he couldn't be Jesus he was the son of Joseph and Mary who grew up in Nazareth and 
However, they, they claimed no one would know where he comes from. I don't know where they got that from. I think that was just like a, a teaching someone had made up and had been passed on and one of those, you know, Chinese whispers when you say something. Have you ever done that at school maybe or as an activity and you have a circle of about 20 people and you whisper something like a full sort of couple of sentences and by the time it gets to the end, how much it's changed? That's what gossip is, isn't it? Oh, did you hear? Da, da, da. And then someone else, someone else. And by the time it gets to here, it's so warped and twisted and far from the truth. And it probably was in the first place, but it's even worse when it gets to here. So uh, that's what they're talking about. They're saying, we know this guy. How could he possibly be the Messiah? We know where he comes from. But see, that flies in the face of Scripture. Let's have a look at uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that says this. Um, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. It was prophetically uh, declared that Jesus would come from Bethlehem, that he would be born there. So where they got the, oh, we know where you're from, so you can't be Jesus, not quite sure. Uh, let's continue. Uh, verse 28 and 29. Then Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know, but I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. So, so that Jesus declares they're kind of half wrong, half right, but Jesus isn't mincing words, and that's what I love about him. He just gets straight to the crux of the matter. He told the people they're only half right. Sure, they knew where he came from physically, but he wasn't interested in focusing on his life history. Uh, instead, Jesus returned again to the main issue, you don't know who God is. And that's what he's declaring in that moment. So he's winning friends and influencing people again. Verse 30. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. I love that. God's will for your life will come to pass at the right time. And... There was every opportunity for Jesus to be taken then and killed. But God's plans always come to pass for your life. And it was not his time. Just like it wasn't his time, that's why he delayed going to the feast and went in secret rather than big fanfare. It wasn't his time. He's there preaching in boldness now, knowing that what he's saying is riling up the crowd, agitating them. But he knew that they wouldn't take him because it wasn't his time. That's where his boldness comes from. Can we have the same boldness in our lives, knowing that God has a plan for our life, and even though it hasn't come to pass yet, we can trust and know that when the time is right, it will. So we can walk in boldness and trust in faith, knowing that God is for us and not against us, and that he'll lead us through life's journey. Verse 31, And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? So, taking on the Jesus movement, that's what's happening here. Jesus certainly wasn't Mr. Popularity right now. And we talked about this when we were looking at chapter 6. He kind of reached the peak of his popularity around the time when he healed the person at Bethesda, the man at Bethesda. But from all there, it's downhill because he starts challenging the people. He starts talking about his death. And when you challenge people and talk about death, you lose your crowd, don't you? People aren't happy. They don't want to hear about that kind of stuff. So he wasn't Mr. Popularity. He's telling this crowd of religious people that they didn't know God. And so that's an invitation for opposition, isn't it? 
because all of a sudden they're all indignant. Well, I know who God is. What are you talking about? Don't, who are you to say I don't know God? Think about the climate today in the world when you tell someone directly something. Whoa, look out. So I said, don't engage in debate on social media. You'll get every force of every person ganging up on you. Uh, so uh, the opposition from these people who didn't believe him started coming. They tried to grab him and the Pharisees sent guards to arrest him, but all the attempts failed because it wasn't his time. So I'm not sure what he did, but God protected him through that time because it wasn't his time. And he'll do the same for you. Not everyone opposed him, however. So he hasn't got the whole crowd against him, just probably most of it. Many people put their faith in him as well and, and, and the believing that he was the Messiah. So there were people that believed of the miracles that he did declared that he was the Messiah. There's no middle ground with Jesus. So sooner or later, everyone has to take a side. And we see that in the world today, don't we? Everyone has to take a side. Believe in him or not believe in him. That's the choice. You know, have eternal life or have eternal death. That's the choice. Be for him or be against him. What side are we on? I think I'm talking to the converted in church because you wouldn't be here, I hope. Uh, if you didn't have some interest in following Jesus and uh, hearing about him and wanting to live your life for him, but you just never know who's in the crowd. So it, it is a choice. You don't know who's listening online or watching this in the future. What side are you on? That's out the challenge before us. All right. Verses 33 to 36. This is where I'm finishing today. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? See, they didn't get it. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? See, Jesus gets in the last word. He told the crowd that he wouldn't always be with them, and that got their attention. They're like, what's he talking about? Soon he would go back to God and they wouldn't be able to find him. In their denseness, that's the only word I can think of to explain it, they didn't understand what he said. They were dense. They didn't get it. They thought Jesus meant he was planning a trip into Gentile territory since they didn't understand his true relationship with God. Here's the thing, they didn't get it. But as believers, I trust that we get it. We know where Jesus is now. And in Jesus, we find all that we need. Everything that you could ever want or hope for or need, if you're struggling in life, you find it in him. Another name for God is Jehovah Jireh, which means the God will, my God will provide. And a lot of people take that and go, well, it's talking about money. No, no. It's part talking about money, of course, but that's not all it's talking about. God will provide health. God will provide uh, healing. God will provide restoration in whatever area of your life that you need it. The parts that are broken, the parts that are held by chains, he breaks the chains and he provides freedom in this lifetime. I'm so glad we have a God that provides that for us in every aspect of life. You might be in a relationship struggle right now where everything's getting stretched and you're at breaking point. I think the world's at breaking point with this whole COVID. And I mean, we're blessed here to not have the lockdowns and things, although my heart goes out to businesses that are affected by lockdowns in the southeast corner. You know, tourism and things is impacted here. You know, refunding 
visits and things like that. It's tough. But our God provides what we need when we trust him and put him first. And he'll get us through this season like he has before. He's done it once. He will do it again because he is faithful. And I speak his faithfulness over every life, over every circumstance, over every business, over every person that hears this word. Let's take a look at how our God is faithful at this video. Forever is a long time, right? <laughs> Psalm 23 is so relevant every day of our lives. It often gets read at funerals, but it's so relevant when we have life here in this season. It says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. Aren't you glad that your God leads you to a place of peace? Amen. You can only find peace in the midst of the COVID storm in Jesus. He leads you to green pastures, not rocky ground. Who wants to lie down on rocky ground? I like Girraween Park and the walks there and stuff, but there's a lot of rocks. I don't want to be lying down there. Green pastures, praise the Lord. Lovely green pastures. He restores my soul. If you need restoration, come to Jesus. 
He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He takes us a good way. And sometimes we divert. We wonder why bad things happen. But sometimes we take a misstep and, and, and walk away from where God's leading us because we're naturally not perfect. But he always brings us back. He always welcomes us back and leads us on those righteous paths for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and you can all think of a time when you've had a difficult season that you've walked through, but it says, I will fear no evil in that season, for you are with me. God comes with us even in the dark times. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I love that one. Even though people are slinging stuff at you, even though they're saying things that isn't true, even though they come at you, you can sit down in confidence at a table that they can see you and know that your God is for you and not against you. And the things that they're saying to you have no power over you because you have a God who is greater, stronger, the name above every name. They can call you whatever name they like because you serve the name above all names, Jesus. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. He provides more than enough. And then surely, everyone say surely. Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever and ever. (laughs) So good. I want to give an invitation as I come to a close. We do this at every service at Vineyard Christian Church for people to accept Jesus and, and trust him, put their trust in him and hand the reins over of their life to him. Not just the portion that we're comfortable with, but the whole lot. Handing over your life to Jesus is the greatest decision you can ever make because we can't find that peace we just talked about without him. Life is in turmoil until we meet Jesus and surrender our life. And it's like this weight comes off your shoulders because all of a sudden we've been trying in our own strength, trying and trying to do what we need to do to feel satisfied in life. And we can't quite get there. Yet when we invite Jesus to come and fill us, he fills us. Our cup overflows. He gives us everything that we need. He takes our burdens. And all of a sudden, you can have that peace and you relax because Jesus is in control. And so I want to invite people to say yes to Jesus in this moment. You can do this online if you're watching at home as well. We want to encourage you to do that. So would you bow your heads in this place today and if you're at home And I want to ask you, do you want to say yes to Jesus? Do you want that peace that we've been talking about? Do you want that forgiveness, that restoration, that that ability to have that weight taken off your shoulders because Jesus carries our burdens? If that's you today, would you just show me your hand and I want to know that you're included in the prayer I'm about to pray together today. Yeah, I see that hand. That's great. Yep, those hands too. Good, Good choice. Good choice. I see that hand too. God bless you. Fantastic. If you're at home, I can't see into your living rooms, or can I? No, I can't. Uh, So you just lift up your hands, and God sees your heart. God is in your living room or wherever you find yourself right now. So I'd encourage you to lift your hand as well. And we're going to pray this prayer together. So would you just say this after me? Dear Jesus, I thank you that you came. And that you died for me. I now confess with my mouth that you are my Lord. I hand over the reins of my life so that you can have complete control. 
And I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead so that my life could be restored. So I choose to trust you and live my life for you for this day forward. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Can we praise God and thank him for people making decisions to follow Jesus today? Many of you are making that decision as a recommitment to the Lord, and that's brilliant. But if we can help you on your journey, that's what we're here for. Come and see myself or my wife who's running, Anita, who's running kids today. And we want to chat with you if we can help you on your journey and give you a Bible if you need one, whatever. We're here to help. So don't be a stranger. Let, it, let the church help you through your journey. Amen? Amen. Who's ready for coffee? Oh, before it was like everyone, now it's like, oh. <laughs> Let's go and enjoy coffee together and fellowship. We'll see you later on, 3 o'clock for